a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Pastor Scott, this guy, yes, to answer your Bible <laughs> questions. If you'd like to send us those questions, feel free to do so through our venues. Uh, first of all, email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. The questions is plural, F-O-R-Hope at gmail.com. Feel free to add us to your contacts, and if you ever have a question, feel free to send them along to us. So you leave a question in what we're about to explain in a moment, but we don't have time to get to it on the broadcast. Feel free to send them to us there. It keeps it nice and organized. Just don't forget to actually leave a question. We've been getting emails from people that don't actually have any text in them, and I know that you've probably made the effort to send the question, so don't forget to actually ask the question. Yeah. Things we ask for. <laughs> yeah. If you want to join us on social media, our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you give us a like there, you'll be notified when we are going live, and as that is unfolding, you'll also have a chat box where you can send your questions to us from 4 to 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, or rather Arizona Time, until Daylight Savings anyway, because we don't submit to that. But noting that point, you'll also get the chance to send your questions to us through an inbox and access to our weekly Bible studies that will be on Wednesday night and Sunday mornings. If you want to join us on YouTube, the same benefits apply. That is at A Reason for Hope, and we finally fixed the URL there. If you're watching us live, we'll have it properly spelled out for you. I don't know why it had two A's, but they don't call it typos because they're intentional. Anyway, subscribe to us there, hit the notification bell, you'll get all the benefits as you would on Facebook with uh, slightly more hassle regarding the ads. And note as well, our website, if you want to circumvent all of the social media shenanigans, go to calvarychristianfellowship.com, that's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com, and there you can not only join us live like you would on Facebook or YouTube, have access to a chat room if you click the Watch Live tab, where you can send us your questions and view us live at the same time, but also send us questions anonymously if you wish to uh, keep your name private for the sake or sensitivity of the question and subject matter. So note once again, our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, our Facebook page, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, YouTube is a reason for hope, and our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. And of course, our priority, to make sure God speaks more than we do, why don't we take a moment to pray and ensure that? I think that would be a great idea. Lord, thank you for being present here with us today, and we pray you would be present with uh, each and every person that is logging in here. Lord, thank you that you have a greater desire for us to follow you in spirit and in truth than we could ever have in our own hearts. And so, Lord, because you have all power and because that's your priority, we're looking forward to you using even uh, what we do here to further those ends. Lord, may your truth be spoken. Uh, may we speak your truth, your whole truth, and nothing but your truth as it's revealed in your word, the Bible. And may we, Lord, uh, speak it in love, uh, getting through as your spirit leads and guides us to uh, the questions maybe behind the questions, the, the real questions going on in the hearts that people might be ministered to and understand that uh, Jesus, you're not only the friend who sticks closer than a brother, but that you, Father, are the one who searches hearts and minds and knows exactly how to put us together from the inside out. Thank you for this opportunity to be able to share in your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Now, if that seemed rushed, it's because we have a lot to talk about. Yeah, well, I hope it didn't seem rushed, but uh, but uh, suffice to say, yeah, we do have a lot to talk about. Uh, I meant my uh, uh, introduction of yeah. the website. Okay. <laughs> Fascinatingly, uh, there is talk of a get-together, a confab uh, going on uh, in uh, Paris, France, 
uh, where uh, the head of the Sheen Beit Intelligence Agency and a number of uh, other emissaries from the Israeli government are going to be meeting with other heads of state and uh, associated poobahs uh, to try to come up with a ceasefire proposal uh, in Gaza that would uh, facilitate the release of the 131 hostages still held by the terrorist group Hamas. Well, uh, problems are erupting along this line. One of the big problems, especially if you're pitching the idea of a ceasefire with Islamic terrorists, happened earlier today where four terrorists opened fire at Israeli drivers in a traffic jam, one of the main arteries leading into Jerusalem today. Two terrorists were killed. Two were arrested. Six Israelis uh, were wounded, uh, three of which critically. uh, Further reports tell us that one Israeli has died as a result of his injuries. Um, The three terrorists, again, these are the updated uh, versions of these three terrorists, arrived in a vehicle, got out and started shooting automatic weapons at vehicles that were standing in a traffic jam outside of Jerusalem. Uh, The security forces uh, were there and neutralized uh, two terrorists on the spot. Uh, In the scans conducted to see another terrorist was located who tried to escape. He was also neutralized. By the way, a further uh, report on this indicates that uh, these terrorists were taken down, uh, not by security personnel, but by uh, Israelis, uh, citizens who happen to be uh, carrying arms on the scene. So uh, the three terrorists have been identified uh, as Palestinians from the Bethlehem, uh, area. They arrived in two different vehicles and uh, unleashed uh, their carnage on innocent civilians once again. However, by their lights, there is no such thing as an innocent civilian. If you are an Israeli, you are a target. So uh, what that has, uh, what impact that has on this uh, Paris confab, uh, this attempt to come up with some kind of a ceasefire in this region, uh, still yet uh, to, uh, to be determined. A number of uh, very interesting developments. Um, Again, uh, there was a, uh, I I guess I would call call it a um, uh, a, uh, hysterical uh, story that was being uh, circulated in some Christian circles, that there was a direct tie-in to the October 7th massacre and uh, the sacrifice of a red heifer on the Temple Mount that took place at that time. For those of you not familiar with this, uh, the uh, scripture talks about a red heifer sacrifice as being required to be able to uh, sanctify all of the various implements and tools that would be used uh, to offer sacrifices in uh, a rebuilt temple. Well, all this sensationalism that uh, came out of this uh, doesn't bear in mind a very important detail. Uh, along this line. Uh, We are told uh, that uh, the sacrifice of the red heifer is not something that would ever happen on the Temple Mount. It had to be uh, conducted outside of the Temple Mount. Uh, If uh, you want to check into this uh, directly, uh, you can go to the Temple Institute website. Uh, That is an organization that is uh, actively promoting the rebuilding of the Jewish Temple, uh, the reinstitution of Jewish sacrifices. And uh, essentially, in Numbers chapter 19, we see these laws being outlined. You can read Numbers chapter 19 and discover what this is all about. Bottom line is uh, there was no red heifer sacrificed on the Temple Mount. Uh, This had nothing to do with the October 7th massacre. Uh, 
that took place. Uh, so if someone tries to sell you on something like that, uh, again, uh, don't uh, go along with it. Uh, a uh, member of the U.S. Congress catching some significant heat, Andy Ogles, of, uh, a uh, congressman, uh, essentially uh, catching a lot of flack for uh, saying that he wishes death to Hamas. Well, that instantly got spun in the press of him uh, wishing death on all the Palestinians. Uh, Representative Ogles uh, clarified his remarks by detailing in uh, some quite specific ways the incredible atrocities that Hamas visited upon uh, those that they massacred, including uh, not just the rape, but the cutting off of uh, breasts of women, uh, the cutting off of genitals of men, uh, before they were killed and raped in these attacks. Uh, he said, in light of all of this, who wouldn't wish death upon an organization along this line? And so he's not backing down a bit. Uh, the most uh, interesting development that happened uh, earlier today, believe it or not, uh, there was a uh, major panic uh, roughly about uh, 2.32 in the morning, local time here, when uh, major uh, nets... Uh, immediately all failed uh, here in the United States. Uh, there was a uh, speculation that this was a cyber attack on uh, our main internet uh, arteries. Uh, but uh, essentially what happened was there was what was called an X-level solar flare that hit the atmosphere at that particular time and knocked out the internet uh, for about uh, 15 or 20 minutes or so. So, or as uh, modern day kids would call it, the apocalypse. Yeah, exactly. So uh, the, the fascinating thing to me about this is uh, that uh, the more we become dependent on things like the Internet, and you know, let's, uh, for full disclosure, say we are broadcasting this program on the Internet even as we speak, but the more dependent we get on the Internet, uh, the more we may be setting ourselves up uh, for something that could be quite disastrous. Back in the 1800s, there was a uh, huge solar flare that hit the Earth. It was called the Carrington event. Uh, that was uh, roughly just after uh, electricity was being used for things like telegraphs and so on. Uh, this uh, particular solar flare impacted uh, with such force uh, that uh, telegraph lines uh, literally snapped uh, the uh, the sparking and, and so on that, that went on there uh, basically shut all of these things down. Uh, there are those who estimate that if we had another Carrington event, a solar flare of that magnitude, it would knock out a good portion of our satellites as well as the Internet. Uh, just makes you kind of wonder how we would cope under that particular set of circumstances. Fascinating uh, how Jesus said uh, that one of the signs uh, of the imminent return uh, uh, of Jesus would be this. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and the expectation of those things that are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Uh, so uh, one of the things that we are to look for as far as one of the signs of the times are events like what happened at 2.32 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. Uh, could you imagine if something more major uh, took place, especially with an Internet-dependent culture like the one 
that we're in right now. So uh, again, please be praying uh, for the survivors of this attempted massacre that took place in Jerusalem. One of the survivors in critical condition in the hospital is a woman who is six months pregnant. Uh, so uh, these individuals have uh, no uh, reticence at all uh, about attacking uh, men, women, and children. Uh, and uh, again, uh, I'm not sure how you can possibly have a, a peace accord with something along this line. Uh, by the way, if you follow us on our uh, X platform site, formerly known as Twitter, uh, we have posted up there a very interesting interchange uh, that took place uh, online uh, between uh, Representative Brian Mast and a representative from the U.S. State Department who is in charge of all things arms control in the United States of America. Representative Mast, and you can see the entire five-minute interchange that took place there, asked this woman point blank, uh, are you in favor of a two-state solution? She said she was. He said, all right, then who is going to be leading this Palestinian state? Is it going to be Hamas? Is it going to be Fatah? Is it going to be Palestinian Jihad? Is it going to be Hezbollah? Uh, who is going to be leading up this state? Uh, she said, well, you know, I, I just don't think I can answer that particular question. Well, Representative Mast uh, essentially uh, nailed her down uh, on this particular issue and, uh, you know, again, uh, refused uh, to uh, say anything uh, about uh, the idea of what would happen if uh, a Palestinian state was formed. So if uh, this particular get-together of individuals in Paris is talking about a ceasefire and the exchange, uh, the release of hostages in exchange for a Palestinian state, uh, I think, uh, in, in essence, uh, it's going to be a non-starter because of this. Who is going to run that Palestinian state? Poll after poll after poll shows the Palestinians are very much in favor of what Hamas did on October 7th and very much in favor of having a group like Hamas run the show if a Palestinian state is actually declared. Uh, Senator Ted Cruz uh, tweeted this. Wow, watch this. Uh, the staggering ideological and utterly incompetent uh, display going on here. This may fall in the top 10 worst congressional testimonies in history. So you can go online to our uh, uh, Scott R4H on uh, X and uh, watch the entire, uh, I guess, meltdown take place. But uh, very important that we have uh, individuals like Representative Mass there who can ask these hard questions because these are questions that have to be answered before anything along this line can possibly take place. So with that said, unfortunately, though necessarily, let us know if there's any more clarification you need on that. But dedicating the rest of the time to your Bible questions, let's get to them. Uh, most of these are leftovers, so note that you do have time to send them in so we can give adequate time to your questions. But this one was left to us yesterday from Mike, who wants to know and following up with how to do the whole Christian thing. How can he be ready for the Lord's coming? Now, there's obviously a direct answer to that, but he also is clarifying it from a perspective that needs correction. He knows he is not ready because he's struggling with a good many things, trying to be in a relationship with God is a big one. So before we talk about how to be ready for the Lord's coming, 
why don't we discuss what it means to be ready for the Lord's coming? It doesn't mean that you're free from all sin, free from all doubt, free from all struggle, that the Lord is only... Free from any self-consciousness. Yes, uh, <laughs> yeah. free. <laughs> that, that, that kind of uh, would, would yeah. go along with that. We're building on the absurdism yeah. here. Does Jesus make the condition that the only reason you're saved is because at all times you feel saved, you're acting saved, you are 100% living the sanctified Christian life? Yikes. Or does God actually know what he's dealing with when or, it comes to us? Or are liars going to heaven, I guess, is the other uh, point of view. Um, kind of setting aside the smack and sarcasm there. You know, what, what you're asking here is a really, really good question. What does it mean to be ready uh, when Jesus comes? Because Jesus, over and over again, in Matthew chapter 24, he uh, goes on uh, in Matthew chapter tw- uh, about the idea of being ready for his return. Matthew chapter 25 is one parable after another that Jesus lays out with one theme in mind. Be ready for my return. It could happen at any moment. Okay, what does being ready really look like? Well, for my money, uh, the single best uh, passage of Scripture that can not only, uh, I think, deal uh, with the idea of feeling unworthy to see Jesus, unworthy, say, to be caught up to meet him in the air at the event called the rapture, uh, really kind of comes down to uh, our understanding of how we are saved, how God accepts us as his children. Does he accept us only if we uh, make a promise to never to drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do, and tithe and witness too, cuckoo, cuckoo? Uh, or is there something uh, that we need to understand that can make us ready for the Lord's return. Well, I would really encourage you uh, to take a look at Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. This, to me, is one of the most succinct but powerful passages that answers the question, how can we be ready when Jesus returns? There the Apostle Paul writes, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. First uh, insight into your question is given to us right there. What makes us right and ready for an event like the rapture? That wonderful word that we see there, the grace of God. How are we made right with God? Is it on the basis of anything we do for him? Promises made, uh, new patterns of living, uh, mem- uh, devoting ourselves to particular organizations and, and to show ourselves worthy? No, it is his grace uh, and grace is far deeper than just something we say before we eat. Oh, Lord, for this food I'm about to eat, please forgive me, or things along this line. Grace has best been defined as God's unmerited, undeserved favor. Uh, I love the acrostic that goes with grace that can really keep us on track. God's riches at Christ's expense. What saves us? We were saved when Jesus died for us on the cross, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, not because we could somehow pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps and make ourselves ready and uh, prepared for the kingdom, but because we could not. Uh, Ephesians chapter two says, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. I love that word gift there because it implies something. It tells me that God's actually interested in us getting to heaven. He's more interested in us getting to heaven than we are in being there. So the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. If you're going to have a proper understanding of being ready for the Lord's return, 
you first have to understand that concept of how we're made right with God, simply by putting our trust and our faith in what he has done for us. For God so loved the world, John chapter 3 and verse 16 says, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever repents of all known sin and, and uh, you know, brings forth fruit in keeping with repentance. No, it doesn't say that. That whosoever believes in him, simply puts their faith and trust in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. So uh, we don't want to get the cart before the horse. After we become Christians, God does want to talk to us about changing our life. But to say to somebody who is, according to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, spiritually dead, well, um, turn from all known sin and then you can become a Christian. No, that, that, that doesn't work any more than, say, coming up to the guest of honor at a memorial uh, and uh, at an open casket and say, hey, you really ought to get up and, and mingle with these guests. You know, they're all here to see you. Uh, might be a good piece of advice, but they can't do it. Why? Because they're dead. <laughs> they're not just a little off. They are dead. Uh, and, and so to tell people they've got to get their life together before they are made right with God is getting the cart before the horse. We have to be made right by grace. And, and so the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Once we receive that grace of God, then that grace, the power of God's spirit inside of us, begins to change and transform us from the inside out. Now, does that happen all at once? Not even remotely. Yeah. Some things definitely are a work of grace, but note that just like our salvation, it's God's idea, and what he decides to deal with immediately in your heart and what he's going to deal with over time both serve the same purpose, a la Romans chapter 8, to conform you to the image of his Son. Now, we'd all prefer if it was an instantaneous work in process, but the fact of the matter is the term fruit is not something that happens immediately, or at least not as immediate as our pre-solar flare internet culture wants us to. Yeah. If it's ultimately coming down to the fact that we have been given the grace of God, his idea, his nature, not ours, that we've been given the Spirit of God, indwelt, not by a new perspective on life, but literally a recreation that has sealed us in seven and heavenly places, excuse me, in Christ Jesus. Notice, in Christ Jesus, not in our actualized superego and our ideal uh, perspective that is now informed by Jesus. No, our participation in this is exactly what he laid out for us in John 6, 28. How may we work the works of God? This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. And that is why the Basically, the mantra of the apostles is that you would continue in the grace of God, that you would continue in faith in Christ Jesus, trusting in the things that he has demonstrated, he has done, he is to you personally. What that ultimately does over time is going to depend person by person, but the very, very, very fundamental difference between a non-believer and a saved soul is someone who doesn't stop sinning, but actually cares about that fact. And as we're struggling, the fact that there is a struggle is the hallmark sign of the Spirit's work. If And we say this a lot on the broadcast, and we'll continue to, because it is that much of a common issue and source of doubt. When I'm asking the question, am I really saved, the person who isn't saved wouldn't care. 
because no one would ever call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And vice versa, no one would call Jesus accursed if they were speaking by the Spirit. So note, false prophets and true believers noted by what you do with Jesus. But noting that that is a work of the Spirit, and words against God's Word are not, then we have to build on that point and understand this is God's work. I'm just available for the process. We get to make decisions, yes, we do have immediate horizontal consequences for those decisions depending on what kind of choice they were, but knowing that you didn't save yourself is also the same fundamental fact of you can't cleanse yourself either. You can't fix yourself either. Paul, in uh, A Man After My Own Heart, stated rather sarcastically in the book of Galatians, O you foolish Galatians, having begun in the Spirit, that is in referencing salvation, are you now being made perfect or complete by the flesh? Are your efforts, are your emotions, is your confidence the basis for your standing with God? And the whole point of that book was addressing people who think, well, we're ready for the Lord, fill in the blank as to what that would entail, but we're living the Christian life because we observe Jewish rituals, because we feel saved as a result of our actions, instead of focusing on what Jesus did and what the Spirit is doing and what the Father said he'd do from the beginning. If our eyes are on ourselves, Peter Martin said this often, we're inevitably going to get depressed. But if our eyes are on the Lord, then we understand not only what we're growing towards, but who we're growing by, who's doing that growth process in the first place. And if it takes months, it takes months. If it takes years, it takes years. If it takes a lifetime to deal with the things that we all struggle and stumble in, that James acknowledges and saying, not many of you become teachers, for we all stumble in many things. It ultimately is built on the foundation of what Jesus has done. We can't change that. We can't alter it. We can't diminish it. We can only receive or reject it. And someone who has received it has the Spirit, and that alone is our confidence. So noting, if they put out well-intended movies and saying, well, I requested specifically from the Lord to leave me behind so that I could save souls during the tribulation, everyone should be blinking and saying, what? That's not biblical, nor should it be the attitude yeah. of any believer. Yeah. If I say, well, and again, this is a fair criticism of uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins' Left Behind novels, when they said, oh yeah, that pastor got left behind because even though he had dedicated his life to the Lord, he didn't deal with this area of sin over there, and that was really what ended up being the deciding factor. He didn't deal with that sin. Nonsense. The fact that you physically die or you spiritually are taken to the Lord is because of his finished work, right. not your ongoing work. Yeah, and, and this brings us back to Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Now, I love that because one of the reasons that we look forward with anticipation to Jesus' return is we realize that because of what Jesus has done, God has literally clothed us in the very righteousness of Christ. Uh, the word justified uh, is a wonderful word. It, it carries the idea that we are before God just as if we'd never sinned. That's how God looks at us, because the sacrifice of Jesus was so tremendous and so powerful. 
And so having received that, right, he's redeemed us from every lawless deed. That is the consequences of our sins and purified for himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. You know, if you love somebody, it's going to change the way you live your life. You're going to be zealous for good works. It's going to change the way you live. Uh, you know, like uh, I use this uh, illustration uh, quite a bit, and uh, it raises some eyebrows, but here we go again. Uh, when uh, I got married, right, uh, to my wife, Pam, and, and, you know, it was just one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. Could you imagine what our relationship would be like if when we got back from our honeymoon, I got out a copy of, uh, say, the Arizona Revised Statutes regarding marriage, and I said to her, this is what you can expect out of me in this relationship. No more and no less. Uh, well, that would probably uh, not in, make me a nominee for the uh, Most Romantic Guy Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, why, for instance, do I take my wedding vows seriously? Why is it that uh, I don't come home, say, after this broadcast and say to my wife, uh, well, uh, I, I'm going to go out for a little while. I'll be back. Well, where are you going? Well, I got a date tonight. Why, why don't I date now that I'm married? Well, it's not just because I swore to forsake all others, uh, made a vow before God and these witnesses, but it's because I love my wife so much, the idea of doing something like that would just be absolutely heartbreaking to me to cause her that kind of pain. Uh, someone I love so much is uh, kind of what keeps me in line, the old Johnny Cash thing, because you're mine, I walk the line. Uh, and so when we have this living relationship with Jesus, when we understand the tremendous nature of his love uh, that, that surpasses knowledge, no one will ever know the height, width, and depth, and length of his love. Uh, but when we get a foretaste of that, it changes uh, the way we live our lives morally. It, it changes the way we live our lives ethically in a way that having you know a to-do list or a to-don't list or or say, oh boy, you know, uh, I better not watch that program on Netflix because if Jesus comes back during that time, I'm not going to go. Uh, no, that's, that's not the motivation. God has not given us a spirit of fear, we are told in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, but of power and love and a sound mind. And so if we've got that going for us, we're going to be just fine. With that said, let us know if that helps you out, Mike. And thank you for asking these questions, because note, you are not alone in them. Yeah. Uh, this is a, an anonymous question asked by, that's An kind of the point. Anonymous. <laughs> uh, who wants to know, are premonitions ever from God? So the idea of knowing something before it happens, the whole Jedi double vision type of deal. Or would they be more appropriately attributed to coincidence, maybe even demonic, for example, having a vivid dream and then experiencing that dream or some part of it in your day or days to follow. So the idea and question is, is there a biblical precedent for a spiritual gift or work from God that would give you an immediate, quote-unquote, prophecy of a certain event or decision in order to either prevent or cause it from happening? Say for a more direct example, uh, I saw this person in my dream, and then the next day I just felt like I was going to share the Lord with them and they end up getting saved. I guess God uh, gave me that dream for a reason and saying, well, it must have been a premonition. How do we test, and I hopefully this is the heart of the question, Anonymous, how do we test whether or not an interesting experience is from God, is a coincidence, is demonic, or just happened and we may be reading too much into it? Yeah, well, 
probably uh, the, the interesting thing about like premonitions and, and things along this line is uh, the, the, the principle that Satan's never had an original thought in his mind. Oftentimes people say, oh, you know, I've got this gift of ESP or, you know, the ability of precognition or things like that. Uh, really, these things are ripoffs, if you will, of the genuine article. Uh, you know, it's uh, really interesting how uh, we see in the scripture there were those that God basically gave heavenly heads up to uh, as far as what was going to be happening great example of this and if you want to read through some really wild passages about a guy whose ministry included this sort of thing uh, understanding what was going on it was the prophet Elisha he was the successor to the prophet Elijah uh, and uh, boy he had an amazing ministry in uh, the book of second Kings chapter 6 we are told that Elisha had such a connection with God uh, that he would tell the king of Israel exactly where his Syrian enemies were going to attack before they even mustered their forces. So the king of uh, Syria got together his generals and said, all right, I smell a rat here. Which one of you are tipping off the Israelis about where we're going to uh, attack next? And uh, one of the generals said, no one, uh, Lord, but it's the prophet Elisha. He even knows the things you say in your own bedroom. <laughs> So, um, yikes. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and so God gave Elisha this tremendous gift. Uh, I mean, there were times where the, the king of Israel during a particular famine situation was so upset about the famine uh, and knowing it was a judgment of God, he sent his henchmen to go get Elisha and, you know, swore that he was going to kill him. And Elisha goes, oh, you know, uh, how interesting. The king's sending his henchmen here, and they're outside the door. <laughs> yeah. So tells the servant when he gets here, open it and then pin him in it because there's guys behind him. Yeah, so the, the, the bottom line is we do see that God who exists above and beyond time can reveal to his people future events, things that are yet going to happen. We see so, this in the New Testament as well. Uh, there was a fellow by the name of Agabus, uh, an interesting prophet that we run into in the book of Acts, who at one point comes up to the Apostle Paul, uh, takes off uh, Paul's belt, uh, ties his hands and feet and lies on the floor and says, uh, just as I bound myself with this belt, so the Jews are going to bind you and send you to Caesar. And it was fulfilled. It was absolutely fulfilled. But this would be an idea, you could call it precognition, you could call it personal prophecy, but we do see these things illustrated in the scripture. And in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we are told one of the spiritual gifts that God gives to people is something called a word of knowledge. In other words, God tells people things that are going to happen before they do. I don't believe it happens every other day. Uh, God will do that if there's no other way to accomplish his will. Off, uh, in most cases, God works uh, in such subtle ways uh, mysterious ways, if you will, that we don't see the out-and-out -out miraculous. But if you need a miracle, God will give you that miracle. So, so it is very possible to have these kind of precognitions, if you will. It is possible that God, who lives above and beyond time, can reveal future events to you. 
in uh, the short term. In the not short just term. in broad strokes, yeah. not exclusively referring to the coming of Christ or the reference to the Messiah. There can be things that specifically and exclusively pertain to us. There's precedent for that. Yeah, and, and oftentimes they're intensely personal. Yes. Yeah. Now the question is, how do we tell? Because if God can do something, does that mean that God has done something? The well, answer is no. two things. Uh, whenever anyone gets involved uh, with a prophecy, uh, a uh, prediction along this line, uh, there's two passages, go-to passages we need to go to. Deuteronomy chapter 13, we're told if there comes a, a prophet or a, an interpreter of dreams, a seer of signs, uh, and, uh, he, and what he predicts comes to pass, but he tells you, go after other gods that you haven't known. You're not to listen to him because God's testing you to find out if your heart's loyal to him. Just because someone is uh, able, in a sense, to tell you something that is going to happen and it does happen, uh, that doesn't mean that we set aside our Bibles and take everything that that person says uh, as gospel, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, again, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19 uh, says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good. And so the first test is this, does this particular event, does this prediction lead you to a deeper dependency on God or the purveyor of signs? Does the doctrinal stuff that goes with that particular prediction line up perfectly, immaculately, with what the rest of the Bible says about a relationship with God. Because one of the things about signs and wonders, it's like the old slogan for Lay's potato chips, that you can't eat just one. Uh, once people oftentimes are exposed to miracles, they find themselves saying things like, oh man, I can't wait for another one. And it doesn't happen. And so you kind of force it if you will, and trying to force God's hand to do something that in his sovereignty he's decided not to do is really a recipe for disaster. So that's the first one. Mm -hmm. You test everything doctrinally. What this person says about who Jesus is, uh, you know, what the Bible is. Is it God's man's word about God or God's word to man? Uh, do they lay some kind of legalistic trip on you? Do they foster an unhealthy dependency upon them as your spiritual guru, instead of telling you to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, these are ways that you can test according to Deuteronomy 13. And then obviously in Deuteronomy 18, we're told if someone comes and uh, they, they say, well, how can we know the word that which the Lord hasn't spoken? Great question, right? Well, if the thing that this prophet says doesn't come to pass, uh, it's not from God. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not listen to them. In other words, if you make a prediction, you can't say, oh, well, I'm right 90% of the time. No, if you're a prophet, you're speaking for God who gets it right 100% of the time. And if you don't get it right 100% of the time to the exact minute details, you are a false prophet. Now, of all the things you never want to be called in the Bible, that's one of them. <laughs> I, I think that's Definitely probably top three. In, in the top three, yeah. So, you know, when, uh, when people ask that question, can uh, people foresee the future? Yeah, be careful because, again, 
you know, our good friend Adrian Van Vactor, a magician, uh, can tell you that there are uh, such things as cold readings and hot readings that, that fortune tellers do that are really uh, clever uh, psychological manipulations that will get you to tell that person details about their life and do it in such a way you don't really realize you're, you're doing it. And then you come away and say, oh, this person told me things about my life that nobody could ever know. Well, they're just very skilled at leading you where you want to go. Uh, some of these uh, programs with these mediums, the TV broadcast, cable shows, uh, they're what you would call hot readings in that uh, the people who go on these shows will sit in a green room for a few hours before the broadcast. They don't realize that there's people that are part of the production team sitting there like they're going to go on the broadcast with them. And the last question, like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm here because, you know, I really want to get in touch with my dear sainted grandma that passed away. And, and I have this question about, you know, our, our, uh, our, our will and things like that. Uh, what are you here for? Oh, well, I'm here for this because my sister, you know, she's, she's this and, and, and that. And, oh, well, the whole thing's being uh, watched on video. So the person comes out and the alleged medium, the alleged seer says, oh, wait a minute. Um, you're here because of your sister and the situation that was involved here, aren't you? They're like, oh, oh my gosh, how could they have known that? Because you sat in the green room and told one of the production members that was what was going on. It, it can be that ham-fisted at times. But when God does it, you'll know God does it. How can you know? First of all, it's going to lead you to a deeper dependency on the scriptures. That's the first way that you judge these things. Secondly, it's going to lead you to a place where you are more committed to God, not necessarily the servant of God, but to God himself than when you started. And thirdly, it's actually going to come to pass, down to the crossing the T's and the dotting of the I's. So we're, you know, and if someone, and I get this from time to time because people come up to me and say, oh, the Lord's laid something on my heart that I need to share with you. Uh, I'll say, well, sure, share away. And if, you know, they say something's a little hinky or a little off or something like that, or even if I say something like, well, you know, I'll pray about that. Sometimes they get mad and they're like, how dare you question me? I am the great prophet. God's speaking through me and, and you're going to be cursed and all. Well, okay. Well, Jesus took the curse of the law for me. So I know that that's not right. Uh, I know this person's angry and mad. Uh, God's not mad at me. So I know that's not right. Uh, oftentimes uh, their predictions uh, don't line up with scripture. So that's not right. Anybody that comes to you with a genuine message from God is going to say, test it, you know, don't take my word for it. I just feel God has, has laid this on my heart to share with you. Uh, I, you know, but scripture is really where it's at. That's how you're going to know the real deal. So just to recap, that God can do something which is a very broad list, yeah, and that God has done something are two very different things. If someone presents something to you, Scripture itself, see 1 Thessalonians 5, 18 through 21, notes everything that is going to come from God is willing to be tested, a testing accorded to what, uh, testing accorded, testing according to what standard. First, start with the first man God used to reveal himself in the context of writing. Moses was willing to be accountable. Moses was willing to put his facts on the table and said, how will they know? 
that the Lord indeed has spoken, and he gave him signs and wonders. That's the point of emphasis. That's the character of God revealed throughout history, going through and beyond the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus. So if that's then the case, what do we look for? First, we look for consistency with his word. Everything that God speaks to us personally is going to be something that lines up with what he's also shared with us universally. That is through Scripture. If it doesn't line up with Scripture or is in conflict with Scripture, throw it out. It's not from God. If you receive these sort of premonitions or ideas and perspectives that require you to depend on God more, that's not a passing grade, but it is a good sign. Note the difference. Right. If someone comes to you with these sort of predictions about your life and they come true, pay careful attention to this. That does not prove the person is infallible. It means that an infallible source spoke through them at that moment. If a false prophet uses one positive prophecy in order to justify hundreds of thousands, they need to also be judged on an individual basis because someone making a truth statement does not mean that statement or that person is a truth statement maker. Right. It means they made a true statement, which would have been true if they said it or not. Yeah. Remember that. Yeah. And then lastly and most importantly, if they put that forward in order to lead you to other things, then the prophecy itself that don't line up with Scripture it also fails, regardless of whether or not it was a legitimate sign. That's how you know something's demonic. So let us know, Anonymous, if that helps. And the only other thing I would say is if someone gets it wrong, and there's some very prominent people that have made prophecies and have gotten it wrong, mm -hmm. and they are completely unapologetic about it, that is a real sign you're dealing with a spiritual wolf. Don't be a part of a ministry where someone claims the role of being a prophet or a seer and gets things wrong. Because uh, if they get that wrong, guess what else they're getting wrong about everything else? A so. perfect example would be they make a prediction of the rapture, and then they say, oh, no, no, wait, I made a miscalculation. This is the true sign, and then this is the Word of God now. This is the real deal. Don't do it. If they make a mistake, and there have been Christians throughout history that made false prophecies and owned up to it, and see them restored. It's a sin like any other, but note the nature and character that reveals as well. You play fast and loose with God's Word and don't care, I don't see the Spirit in that. Yeah. Big yeah. warning. God's not down with false prophets. Yeah. <laughs> so. so, question from Nana. Uh, okay. Could you provide an insight into the nuance of 1 Corinthians 14, 2 through 4? Now, for those who weren't with us two weeks ago, this was a question that Bo Olette and I dealt with two weeks ago, and the point was surrounding the proper use of the gift of tongues. Now, the gist of the answer to that question was there are four ways to do tongues right. There are two audiences, to God and to man, Right. and to man requires an interpreter in order to be legitimate. If right. it's to God, it would be a prayer, but noting that it is going to be a legitimate language, that God can do this in a private setting, right. but it's not going to be something exercised in public, and it may not even necessarily be something you're aware of at the time. So note that point. The second is the audience. It's going to be either to believers in the church, or it's going to be to non-believers, both in and outside of the church, as a sign to them. The sign of tongues to a believer is actually a negative because it would require an interpretation, and it's showing 
for the most part. There can be other instances. But you guys are a bunch of soreheads. I have to do this sign to verify what could have been stated plainly in your native tongue. Right. So note that point. The second is, as a sign to non-believers, the most prominent example would be at Pentecost in the book of Acts, in order to draw attention to the glories of God. Right. Now, note that point, that the non-believer is going to be the interpreter in that context, whereas in all of these scenarios, that a tongue is going to have an interpretation, with one exception, privately, by yourself, to God, and something you probably won't even be aware of. I'll note that point. These signs have a purpose, and it's not to be spouting off nonsense or to shock people with these words, but in order to be understood and communicated supernaturally. Yeah. Now, the gift of tongues is going to include the gift of interpretation. Nana's question is essentially looking for wiggle room. Is there nuance to the idea that God could do things that are not in his word in regards to the gift of tongues? Well, I guess the short answer to all of that is, uh, why would he? Uh, you know, I guess, Nana, what I would say is uh, the, the Bible has been accurately called God's basic instructions before leaving earth. Uh, and uh, we find in the Bible uh, all that we need to know and understand about the care and maintenance of spiritual gifts. Uh, you know, when we find ourselves in a place where we go too far, as the Apostle John warned, and doesn't abide in the message of truth, we find ourselves in very, very uh, difficult territory indeed. Uh, some of these uh, individuals who claim revelation knowledge from God for instance, have said, well, this isn't in your Bible, but this is revelation knowledge that Adam and Eve used to fly in the Garden of Eden and that Adam was designed to give birth out of his side. Um, no, 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 you don't need that. Um, we're told in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The man of God may be adequate, catch this, equipped for every good work. So everything that we need to know about the practice of the gift of speaking in tongues or any other spiritual gift is contained in the Word of God. If someone says, oh, but this is kind of the way we do things here, or I know this isn't in the Bible, but um, be really careful with that. Uh, you know, when, uh, you know, for instance, in my experiences with Pentecostal churches, Normally, the way the gift of speaking in tongues is practiced in a large group is that worship will start and a few people will start speaking in tongues and then a bunch of people will start speaking in tongues and people start singing in tongues and then it will die down and the pastor will stand up and say something like, my dear children, I love you very much, and it goes on from there. Even though none well, of <laughs> Well, a couple of things about this. Uh, when we take a look, okay, uh, interesting, but let's check uh, the owner's manual. Uh, we are told in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 20, how is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation, let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Now, that's an interesting scripture because oftentimes you have 50 or 100 people speaking in tongues all at once. That doesn't line up with what we read here. 
Secondly, when the interpretation comes, it often comes and it sounds almost like a word of prophecy. It's God talking to us, my little children, I love you, and things along this line. Uh, this tells us that no, speaking in tongues is not God talking to us. It's an upward gift. It is us talking to God. First Corinthians 14 goes into that uh, pretty clearly. In fact, he says you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not edified. So, you know, when people will be confronted on this, and I've, I've asked some people about this, and not in a snarky way, uh, but just asking, um, they'd say, well, um, this is our tradition. This is what we do. We're comfortable with this. And I'd say, well, yeah, but shouldn't we try to do things according to the Bible? Well, you know, not everything is in the Bible, and, and, and we can... Well, you've just gone beyond, you know, you've gone beyond what is written. And, uh, you know, so, uh, yeah, we don't want to, on the one side of the coin, become so afraid of charismania, if you will, uh, that we say to God, God, you can't move in miraculous ways. You can't move in sign gifts. Uh, you can't uh, give us words of prophecy. You can't give people the ability to speak in languages they've never learned. Uh, you can't do that because it's been abused. Well, talk about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. On the other side of the coin, we don't want to be people who say, well, it can't be wrong because it feels so right. You know, I remember one of these TV evangelist hucksters who ended up doing jail time for being a fraud uh, was promoting his book, you know, how to twist God's arm and get what you want in prayer or something like that. And then he just started talking in tongues right in the middle of his sales pitch. He claimed and, it was tongues. And, and, and then he said, uh, uh, you say, Bob, what was that? He goes, I don't know, but it sure felt good. That was his quote. And, uh, you know, that is completely unbiblical. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't become so scared of spiritual gifts and God doing supernatural things that we say, oh, that was just for back then. Nothing in the scripture indicates that the gifts of the Spirit are not for today. But, but they're to be done decently and in order. That's emphasized in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And so we look for the fruit of the Spirit coming out of that. God's not the author of confusion, but of order as in all the churches of the saints. Uh, so if things are being done just because you do them, that's not biblical license enough to continue with a particular practice. And if a practice is being taught that is contrary to Scripture or is co-opting Scripture in order to promote a practice that A, was never exercised, and B, never presented in anything that they're putting forward, then we want to avoid their ministry because, see, previous question, now they're lying about the Word of God in order to promote a feeling or an experience or a tradition. That's false prophecy. So, yeah, avoid that. Yeah, um, We are out of questions, but not out of time. So why don't we go to our list of contradictions? And, oh, no, I spoke too soon. We uh, got a question sent along to us from our beloved brother, Adeni. Uh, he wants to know, will dogs be in heaven? Considering the love and joy that dogs bring to people's lives, does it, from a biblical perspective, speak of a divine nature that transcends the physical realm? Thanks. Well, thank you, Adeni, and uh, continued prayers for your ministry, brother. Uh, when it comes uh, by the way, Adeni is in a very... Um challenging place in uh, Nigeria, mm. where he uh, runs a uh, Bible college, a training center for uh, people who, like him, came to Christ 
from a Muslim background, so we are so blessed that Adeni is part of our broadcast. Yeah. yeah. But uh, to be as brief as possible due to the brevity of time yeah. and unwillingness to wait, there's three things that we can base this conclusion on as to being a yes, but we don't have scriptural reference to yes or no, so we can't be dogmatic about it. We can only ask certain questions and say there are legitimate answers. So first, is it possible that just carte blanche animals exist where God directly manifests his glory? And the answer is yes. We see in Revelation chapter 19 that the saints are following the Lamb, the Word of God, Jesus' second coming, not on this earth to another part of this earth, but from heaven to this earth on white horses. So that's not beyond God's capacity for animals to exist in that separate realm where God manifests his glory, the third heaven, as Paul called it. So then the question is, okay, is there reason for God to value the lives of animals in the same way that human lives are valued, albeit preserved? Well, there is grounds for that in the book of Proverbs, chapter 12. It notes that the righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. So if the mark of someone in a right relationship with God values even the lowest form of life, animals, subhuman, right, then that should also be an extension of the divine, that he's not going to just create animals ultimately to let them return to the dust and rot. That's a conclusion, not necessarily scriptural doctrine, though, so we'll make that clear. And then the question is, would there be any eternal purpose for or reason to preserve those animal-based relationships in eternity? And that is what ultimately brings us back to what heaven's all about. Heaven at Denny, and you know this, and everyone else here hopefully is going to get bored of hearing this, but it's with Jesus, and he has the capacity and ability to preserve or uh, build upon those relationships in a way that would make anything we enjoyed on this earth pale by comparison. The point of emphasis, and I'm trying to get to the point of this, it ultimately comes down to whether or not Jesus is the foundation of our understanding of heaven. If he's the focus, if he's the reward, then if you need that pet to be there, dog, cat, goldfish, whatever, he'll take care of that too. God bless you. We'll see you all again tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.